This is a message for all the enemies of TrueAnon Podcast. The haters. The losers. The people who comment on our episodes to say mean things about sometimes when we mispronounce words. Our message to you is this. You can actually pronounce words in any way you want. And in fact, names doubly so. Because they're subjective words. Meaning that you can kind of add your own funk to them if you prefer. We have hacked into your DDoS systems and have made our way into your uh, mainframe, into your mainframe and things of that nature, such as CPUs, motherboards, and even superhighways, fatherboards, and even GPUs and CPUs as well. Motherboard. I said motherboard, but repeat it, motherboard. Stepmother, yeah. I'm the. I'm not the stepfather board, I'm the stepfather board that fucking powers your computer. And I'm in it now. I'm in your laptop. Dell. Mac. Uh, what are the other? Compaq. Compaq. I'm in all these things. Alienware. Alienware. From Liz suggested (laughs) Alienware laptop. Gaming lap. I'm in your gaming laptop for when you ought to go on the road. I'm in there and I see your files and zip drives and Dropbox. drop boxes and external hard drives and things like that. And even your USBs. Uh, I have entered your Android, your iPhone, and the other Chinese one. Huawei. Wha- it's not how you say it though. Huawei. But you know what? That's the message of this program. Huawei. We are a true anon. We do not forgive. We do not forget. We are Legion. Expect us. Sorry, ladies and gentlemen. We just had a, a strange buzzing noise that came from the the of course the mainframe we record this through, <laughs> and then that message. I, I'm too terrified to maybe take it off. My name, not that. My name, of course, is Brace Belden, and I'm Guy Fox. Uh huh. Guy Fox Airy. This is. I was just be like, this is Young Chomsky. This is Young Chomsky, <laughs> who is the producer of this show, which is called. Uh, true enough. Why are you? This is why you fucked up because you're right. doing my role. I know. I'm the guy who does that. No, I am the guy who does that. I I am I the am. guy who does that. <laughs> I was gonna try to do I've that. I've never seen. I am the, that, uh, I'm the podcaster who knocks. I've never seen Breaking Bad, but I love it when he says, "I am I am the guy who does that." I'm the guy who does that stuff. <laughs> do, you do talk about guys who sell meth and who fucking kill dudes. And have a little, yeah. Uh, well, I don't know if there's really the a PC side. word to describe what what the little his little sidekick is there. But whoever whoever a, a white boy who's into rap and emulates aspects of uh, black culture, uh, that's me. I am. Wait, which is you? I'm. Okay, You're the white boy who did. Confused. I am the white boy, and welcome, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, to the White Boy Radio Hour, as Liz tried to call the show, but we, in fact, call it 
True and on. Hello, everyone. Hello, how you doing? There's the beat you like. There's the beat we like. We do like to do that. We've sort of, we've gotten into a groove. We have our little groove, and then sometimes we, you know, mix it up. We flip the script. We flip the script. Sometimes and the script then, uh, us. you know, we do a little improv. Mm-hmm. Brace's favorite game that he learned at his classes at UCB. Okay, well, don't say I obviously had a really traumatic event happen to me at that. When you say, Mom? You don't know about the UCB scandal? The UC Brace scandal? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. Um, I, actually, I don't know enough about improv to even make a joke about improv. And aren't they, didn't their whole thing <laughs> yeah. say, aren't they always like, and then or something? Yes, yes, and. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I thought it was and then. And then. And then. <laughs> it's just you getting the person I, to say I the next up thing. And then in front of a, a crowd of 50 people, which was huge. And everyone laughed. Everyone laughed. And they were laughed. You see Brace last night? He was He's a disaster. <laughs> and uh, of course, that's when I began cutting, uh, which I will resume. Well, you did a sharp inhalation of breath. I've been cutting. You've been cutting? No, I'm done cutting. You're done cutting. You're bulking now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, if you ever want to lose five pounds of dead weight, young Chomsky, I suggest cutting off your head. I was going to say start slitting your wrist. <laughs> Whoa, Jesus Christ. You always, all right, Liz. No, we were doing the cutting pun. That's too far, Liz. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Dude, you know what he, you know. You guys, we I, have been in this room. For a long time. It's been a long time. A long time. It is now 5 p.m. We have been in here since, I'm going to say, 1. I got here at 1.30. I you have came been, le- after me. <laughs> I did come after you. But I said we, as in a collective, of course, Liz usually takes her individualist approach <laughs> no longer. So you might be like, oh, my God, please. I can't believe they're talking about improv. They can't be talking about improv on this show. <clears throat> Wrong. We are kind of talking about improv because we're talking about spontaneity. Wow. That's a great transition. Yes, we have on the show today, old friend, returning guest. We love a returning guest, mm-hmm. Vincent Bevins, who he was on the show previously, which apparently that was three years ago. That's wow. fucking crazy. Dude, if I had a kid, he'd be in then. Like if Vincent and I had a kid when we did that, that yeah. kid would be three. Yeah. By now. That's how that works. Um, he has a new book out called If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution. And he is here to talk about it and sort of try to make sense of various protest movements that defined the past 10 years and how they all failed and why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a good, exa- it's a, in fact, I would say fantastic uh, examination of the decade 2010 to 2020 and the tactics used by protesters, the protesters themselves, uh, their aims, and what actually happened. Yeah, from Brazil to Hong Kong to Ukraine to Tahir Square and back around again. He goes all over the world kind of tracking these different protest movements, what they learn from each other, what they don't learn from each other, and uh, everything in between. So um, I think we should get to it. Y'all, welcome to the first episode of our new sort of revamped, sorry, a little nervous getting (laughs) up here in the talking circle, uh, revamped podcast. It is called, 
what was it called? It's called Us Anon. It's called Us Anon, uh, the world's first horizontalist, totally anti-hierarchical podcast. Kind of everybody gets a voice. Everything is based on consensus. Today we have with us here in the well, we used to call it a studio, but studio kind of has the letter U in it, so we're just calling it the Usio. Uh, which also has a lot of U in it, but it's a sort of a different context, and I think it's people, a different U. It's more of a like a flat U, it's a flat U, exactly, sort of a horizontal U, you might yeah. say. And we're gonna add the umlaut, which everyone knows feels international. It feels international, and it represents yeah. the two. It represents the yin and the yang, right? Which is what we're all about. But we're about the like the meeting of the yin and yang, which makes it complete <clears throat> and yes, whole, absolutely, and universal for all. That's it, a U with an umlaut. An umlaut. With us here in the USEO, we have author of the Jakarta Method and his new book, If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution, Vincent Bevins. Vincent, welcome to the show. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for <laughs> Thank you very much for having me back. I actually object Surely. to Vincent speaking right now, <laughs> so I'm going to hold this podcast. Vince, welcome we to the show. We have to establish full consensus that I'm allowed to start yeah. Yeah, my yeah. participation. Okay, good? Good. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah thank, you, thank you very much for having me back, truly. I'm, I'm glad. We're so excited to have you on. We had you on the show. We were just talking about it. When was it? 2020? Three years ago. 2020. That's crazy when you say that out loud. It was the pandemic. I was stuck in downtown Sao Paulo, which was going through a very, very difficult time for reasons we might even talk about now. Yeah, but yeah, probably. it was, uh, and then, you know, the United States was going through uh, a tough, uh, a, a special moment too. But yeah, three years ago. It was, and it was a tough moment in the United States, but we had the revolution. And, <laughs> you know, right now we, I would Comrade say- Comrade Biden I, is in the White House. Comrade Biden's in the White House. I'm glad to say that we live in probably the first anti-racist country <laughs> in human history. And I mean, it must be weird for you to come back, but, uh, you know, welcome back to, to the States. Uh, Vincent, what is this book about? <laughs> so it is, yeah, it is a work of history. It does actually seek to try to tell the story of what happens in the entire 2010s in the entire world, actually. Um, but that's, of course, not, not possible. Uh, you have to, in any work of history, sort of pick what the focus is, pick what, the, what you're going to select and what you're going to exclude, sort of guiding questions. And this story is told... <clears throat> As if the most important thing that happened in that decade is mass explosions of protests um, that fundamentally altered the trajectory of certain countries and indeed the whole planet. I think, you know, that works as much as anything else as a way to, to guide the history of the, the 2010s. And then the, the question um, that organizes the history, although I don't try to answer it exactly directly, is how is it that so many mass protests led to the opposite of what they asked for? Yeah, you have a quote in the book. So you first asked that question, but we both read the book. We did. And <laughs> yeah, it we is fantastic. Yeah, I, and yeah, it's a great book. I, I think that a, a lot of our listeners are really going to really, really enjoy reading it. You have a quote in the book, the mystery is not only why this package of contention didn't work, but why we thought that it would, which mm -hmm. I think is like a great framing. And, you know, you start, I, I appreciate the fact that you start the book and you say basically like, I'm not going to talk about the U.S., <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is refreshing. Mm -hmm. yeah. as, as Americans, it's refreshing. Um, and it seems like, if I may, that a lot of this book was born out of your own frustration with what you experienced in Brazil in 2013 and kind of watching all of that unfold. And then, as you say, like why the sort of opposite of what <laughs> maybe a lot of the people who were taking to the streets 
we'll, we'll talk about that, mm-hmm. um, why the opposite sort of occurred as history unfolded. Um, so maybe we can start there, and maybe yeah. you can, we can just talk about what did happen in Brazil in 2013. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. Um, I haven't lived in the U.S. since 2006. I don't know it that well compared to a lot of people that could write books about what's happened here recently. And the way that I look at these particular, this particular type of process explosion the criterion that I, of course, made up myself. None of, you know, most of the, the countries that, that count are in the global south or at least outside the traditional first world. And you're absolutely right that my, like, deep concern for this topic is personal, uh, mm-hmm. like it is for almost everybody that I know that lived through June 2013 mm-hmm. in Brazil, um, especially people like me that were there early enough to see the very strange direction that it took, um, to remember what the first protests actually looked like, um, and not only have the sort of historical memory that has also almost become sort of hegemonic of what they became. Um, so to summarize really quickly, uh, in June 2013, a group called the Movimento Passi Livre, which is a group that was dedicated to full horizontalist practice and also wanted to fully decommodify public transportation in Brazil. So in the long term, they wanted all bus uh, and metro uh, rides to be free for everyone. Mm-hmm. And they, they were founded back in 2005. They really grew out of the sort of, well, they grew out of Indie Media Brazil, if you remember, like that website. Yeah, I do remember Indie Media. Yes, I remember Indie Media. I definitely came up reading Indie Media. Um, and they had always, since 2005, anytime there was a, uh, a rise in the price of a bus fare, they had organized protests, like mm-hmm. direct action, sort of prefigurative protests that would either stop people from paying for um, public transportation or enter into conflict with the police sort of inevitably. They always did this. In 2005, they always did this whenever there was a bus fare hike. In 2013, what happens, uh, specifically on June 13th, 2013, they do this so many times that the mainstream Brazilian media and sort of the dominant voices in the country demand a crackdown on this movement. Mm. But the police crack down so forcefully that people like me get hit. They crack down so forcefully that members of the sort of respectable mainstream Brazilian media that mm-hmm. is like owned by oligarchs and I think coincidentally <laughs> is not part of the class. Like the, these reporters are almost definitionally not part of the class that usually is repressed by the Brazilian military police or else they would have seen what was going to come when yeah. you call for this type of crackdown. The crackdown that comes is so horrifying and creates so many viral images of like young, white, respectable Brazilian journalists getting attacked and getting, getting really injured, that the media flips their, their narrative entirely. Mm-hmm. And they go from saying, we need to clear the streets of these punks and these anarchists, to this is a glorious patriotic uprising in defense of the right to rise up in general. This, the, the, we are affirming our right to freedom of speech and self-expression. And as the Brazilian media flips and sort of tells the country what it's now about, Huge amounts of new people enter into the streets. Uh, long story short, some of these people are now would now be uh, very easily recognized as sort of proto bolsonaristas. They, mm-hmm. they, they're like the beginning of what comes together as the f- extreme right movement in Brazil. Different parts of the Brazilian middle class get yeah. involved. You get you get sort of beefy white guys that are anti political coming in with a very different idea of what the protest is than the original like punks and anarchists. The original punks and anarchists try to explain to them, like, oh, hey, actually, this is how we're supposed to do it. Like, you're not supposed to just show up and wave a flag and just make it about whatever, uh, what, like, vague nationalism that's very dangerous that can even lead to fascism. The new arrivals are not only <laughs> entirely uh, unprepared to listen to a, like, lecture for some skinny punks that are, like, you know, 
uh, on the left. They're like, actually, you, you don't have a time. You can't speak right <laughs> Yeah, You have to wait until the, the mic is passed to you. Yeah, you we're here. Our views are valid, which is like ironically what happens to the sort of horizontal group. Um, so many people enter, and they are sort of ideologically committed to not really speaking for anyone or taking leadership in any way that they have a hard time inserting some, some sort of centrality in the protest. But long story short, just a f- seven, ten days after this first protest that I'm at, that the crackdown comes, the what I would call the proto-Bolsonaristas violently expel from the streets yeah. um, the initial sort of left-wing parties and punks and a lot of the kids that had formed the thing uh, Very violently. Existed. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they physically throw them out of the street yeah. and, and they're sort of dejected and they... They all decide what to do with that, and they go home. But um, the the movement that is reproduced to the country by the major media is very different than what some mm-hmm. a, a small group of us remember. And these this initial moment of euphoria, there was like this first moment when everybody's coming, and I think I was guilty of this. A lot of my friends were guilty of it too. We interpreted it as like, oh, it's happening. Like there's, I mean, I, I shouldn't have felt this way because there's I'm, like millions of people. Yeah, I mean, it was like the one of the biggest protests. In the world. I mean, like, it was it was massive. Yeah, it went to 2 million people very, very quickly, and it was totally unexpected. And so sort of understandably, the people there at the beginning thought themselves broadly sympathetic to the goals of, you know, a better welfare state, better public mm-hmm. services. They thought, well, like, this is happening. This is what we've always yeah. wanted. And, you know, later, one of the members of the—I'm summarizing, I'm paraphrasing one of the articles written eventually by one of the members of the Movimento Passi Livre. He says something like, you know— um, for eight years, all we tried to do was create a popular uprising. And then we did, and it was awful. Yeah. Mm. Because different people came than they expected for different reasons than they expected. And the whole thing just sort of blew up in, into this sort of, yeah, this sort of profoundly confounding mix of things that me and other, uh, uh, a lot of other people spent the next years, 10 years trying to figure out. And yeah, this is sort of, <laughs> you're right. This is at the, this is at the core of what, what, why I came back to this so, many, so often. Yeah, that's this story kind of serves as the backbone to the book, it seems, and you kind of come back to it at different stages as you're sort of visiting other cities throughout the world that are kind of um, other sort of test cases for what you're trying to un- unpack, as we like <laughs> to say in the SEO. Mm. Um, you mentioned the Bolsonaristas. I'll say it's, I mean, the other part of that was a lot of the kind of like liberal middle class that showed up right. in with all good intentions, yep. most likely. Mm-hmm. Um, but what that kind of, as that unfolds, it's sort of the seeds for what will become Doma's impeachment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you see these sort of two poles of kind of as we're watching history unfold over this decade of the, you know, the the kind of, middle-class fascists of the Bolsonaristas and the the sort of, like, anti-corruption Dilma, you know, good liberal, and you know, mm-hmm. um, pro-impeachment good liberals, all sort of unfolding as at this protest. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of, um, I don't know, it's like a little incubator or something totally. for what will, what will become the next decade of Brazilian politics. And as I was reading it, it just, I, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on Brazil because there's so many other fascinating movements for us to kind of break down here, but um, the kind of contradiction within the coalition Mm -hmm. that PT was trying to hold together, this sort of like the working class people and the middle class, Mm -hmm. that that coalition was just going to be untenable Mm -hmm. and it was always going to kind of fall apart into something that we see today. Well, the the carpet that is sort of pulled underneath that coalition, which was proved... 
remarkably successful and sustainable for quite a long time. I mean, Lula's second term, he ends with like 88% approval rating before June 2013. Dilma is incredibly popular. Mm -hmm. Um, But the thing that turns out not to be sustainable, and if you look back, it probably never was, is that the way that these people were brought together, and especially the way that the previously very marginalized working classes were brought into a sort of sense of citizenship, a sort of full... Full, full, um, full membership in the Brazilian nation was through consumer power. Absolutely. So it was sort of the, you know there's a, a nice a, a nice there's a uh, a a brilliant uh, Brazilian scholar Rosana uh, Piero Machado who calls this uh, inclusion through consumption. Mm-hmm. And when the the second Dilma government falters, when the economy starts to crack, when this consumption power is taken away from the lower middle class, sort of the classic, you know, the classic subject of historical fascism, like the petty bourgeoisie, mm-hmm. they no longer feel any um, uh, loyalty to the party that has made their ascension possible in the first place. It's being pulled away from them. Sure. Um, they become sort of often like, like micro-entrepreneurs that are very allied with uh, reactionary forces in the country. And in this moment, when Dilma's second term starts to falter... Not in not only because of reaction. I mean, the economy gets worse. This is you know it probably was inevitably going to happen. There's some mistakes that are made in the Workers' Party. Forces that are born, forces that learn in June 2013 that they're also allowed to pro. They can also use this kind of um, the popular sympathy with whatever happened in June 2013. Very cynical, but well organized free market. Libertarian, often funded by the United States, think tanks from the United States. One of the major characters who I interviewed mm-hmm. um, had trained uh, uh, under the Koch brothers here in the U.S. Yeah, they realized the Atlas Network. We've talked about them on our show. Yeah, our very show. recently. Yeah. yeah. So Movimental. So I, I explained at the very beginning. This an original group of left anarchists is called Movimental Passi Livre (MPL). Mm-hmm. This group of which was at the time Estudantes pela Liberdade, is like Students for Liberty, which is a which was like the Brazilian franchise of the U.S. Students for Liberty, mm-hmm. which is part of the like, which is funded by the Atlas Network. Yeah, Liz and I met <laughs> in, in uni, we call it, but we met, <laughs> we met through that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they have, yeah, mm-hmm. they have like fun conferences all around the world. Oh, they do yeah. like do oh, yeah. like effective sort of like mm-hmm. social like transfer of like knowledge and yeah. Things. Thus, you train with Moro there. Mm. <laughs> oh, beautiful Morrowind. <laughs> And they, they in within this like cauldron, I think, would you say the incubator, like you know, pressure cooker of 20, June 2013, they decide to make a bid to re-signify the meaning of the streets, and so they form a group yeah. called Movimento Brasil Livre (MBL). So this is smart. They 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 basically see this successful group called MPL. It's getting all this attention. Yeah. So they start MBL, which sounds exactly the same exactly. in Portuguese. Yeah, yeah. To the yeah. point where I, when I was over the last two years telling people in Brazil, I'm you know I'm interviewing all kinds of people. I'm interviewing Haddad, you know, the, now the finance minister who's mayor of Sao Paulo at the time. I'm interviewing the MPL. Everyone would just be like, "Oh, the MBL!" Like they would like that. Their like brand is now so much stronger than yeah. the group that they copied that they actually won this yeah. bid to re-signify yeah. the streets. So when consumption is taken away, when this sort of like I don't want to call it neoliberal, but the way that the PT um, economic model that had been formulated it's like consumption social democrat. I mean, it was like a way for getting 
poor people's lives better, but it was through this sort of it, yeah. There was a limitation there, right? Especially when the you know when when the when the economy slows down a bit. Yeah, uh, it was built on getting you know everybody got better off, including the 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 poor, yeah. but the rich got you know quite better off too sure. <laughs> when this all fell apart. But then they had to suddenly share all their services with poor people. Well, this was a huge problem too. People yeah. people were furious in the Brazilian elite that they had to pay more to their maids uh, in the like the peak years of like mm-hmm. Lulista. Economic success. This is a big, this is a big quote unquote crisis for a lot of people. But yeah, just to get back to what actually happens when this rug is pulled out, um, this MBL and the you know the liberal middle class and indeed reactionary forces that you know at the very beginning they're only sort of in the that you can be you can ignore them if you want. Some of the good liberals tell themselves that they're, ah they don't they don't really matter. Um, get together yeah, to the soccer fans. Per, to, yeah, yeah. Well, the soccer <laughs> the, the soccer fans go in every direction in Brazil. Ironically, the a lot of the like scariest ultras in Brazil are pro-Lula and pro-democracy, like mm-hmm. the Corinthians ultras are the, uh, like, in a real, like, condition of, like, street battles, the, the, they would probably win. They're, like, pro, they're on the left, probably. Uh, well, they're definitely, like, pro-democracy. But then the, they come together from 2015, 2016, sort of pretending to be the same thing as happened on the street in June, June 2013, but they have an entirely different set of goals, and they're not horizontalists, they're not leaderless, they have, they're willing to work with elites, and they're willing to take power in any way that they can, and they ultimately did. A lot of these MBL kids uh, enter uh, Congress in the same election in which uh, Bolsonaro becomes president. Yeah, you have a funny. Um, your first little nod to Bolsonaro is when you say, "Oh, I'm in. You know, I'm at Congress. There's all this chaos. It's during Dilma's impeachment." Right. And you're like, oh, "I tried to. I got a quote from this guy from Bolsonaro, but he's this fringe, uh, this fringe character. I don't need to to put it in my story. Right. It's not going to work." And then suddenly, I mean, that was one of Bolsonaro's big defining moments mm-hmm. um, when he says those awful things about her, and um, you know, kind of. The stage is set for his, right. you know, his bid, which is, of course, in the works for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, you know, the country takes a total, like, right. <laughs> I mean, total, total turn. Yeah. And like you say, these members from MBL who are very organized, who are very well financed, who are very, um, like you say, not leaderless, yeah. but they're suddenly in power and ready to move. Um, it's a bit disorienting, no? I mean, you, yeah. yeah. Yes. The yeah, no, the years of twenty fourteen, like everyone remember the years of twenty fourteen to twenty eighteen were wildly disorienting in Brazil. Because like going back and interviewing some of the members of MPL, when, in twenty fourteen when Dilma faces off against the center right um, presidential candidate, they're horrified that like the center right might actually win. Like for the first time in there, you know, they're all often they're like twenty, twenty two. They're like the idea that, oh my god, the right quote unquote, which is like this is not the right com- compared to what actually comes into power. Uh, in 2018, like, yeah, it's like a center right. Yeah, thing. it's a it's a party. It's called the Social Democratic Party. It's like yeah, you know, I, it's like founded by yeah. Fernando Henrique Cardoso, which def, he definitely neoliberalizes the economy, but he comes from a tradition. He's a dependency theorist, you know, mm-hmm. um, like a classic. But like, yeah, yeah, your classic yeah. South American center right. Like, yeah, yeah, I fought the dictatorship. I think that we need to privatize everything. This kind of guy. <laughs> uh, and that even to them was like they could not believe it. And then when the impeachment started, no one could believe that that actually might actually go through and then they actually impeached her and then Michelle Temer was actually the president for two years and he had like 6% approval ratings but it just didn't matter like there yeah, was the demonstrably no yeah there was just demonstrably no support or legitimacy for this guy and it just didn't matter yeah. like there's no referee that came in and was like well that's you know that's they've they violated the rules there and then it just and then Bolsonaro just went and like just there's this like like 
thing after thing just keep like I don't know there's like I don't even know if I want to even try to explain what the, the phrase is but like there's a like in Portuguese they say like the well just like kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper you thought you were at the bottom it just kept you just kept yeah. going um, yeah so yes absolutely it's a long way of saying absolutely it was profoundly disorienting until the point when I was last last on the show with you guys like 2020 <laughs> in, the, in the pandemic was insane it was like what was what Sao Paulo went through under under Bolsonaro's governance in that pandemic was like literally unimaginable to the version of myself that moved into that neighborhood mm. eight years prior. There was just like it would have you, you it would have been impossible for me to conceive what ultimately happens. So this it's at this point, I mean, that you start going elsewhere <laughs> throughout the world to try to kind of piece together what happened both in Sao Paulo, but also what was happening elsewhere and why everything was failing. So where do you go first? Well, like, personally, I moved to Indonesia uh, after finally, like, wrapping up my, like, posting in Brazil in 2016. And then, like, you know, lo and behold, it's, like, one of these many things that popped up over all over the decade. There is, like, a what appears to be a grassroots, like, digitally coordinated people power protest but really, it's just Islamists demanding that the Chinese governor be imprisoned for being Chinese, basically. Like right. he, they accuse him of doing of of committing blasphemy, uh, which he didn't, uh, because they, someone had manipulated a, a Facebook clip. And they all get together. They all wear white. They all swarm. Yeah. They all swarm the center of downtown Jakarta. And by this point in the decade, there's like a real flip because back in 2010 or 11 and 12, at the very beginning, which is where I ultimately go, like, to start the reporting for this book. Everyone sort of assumed that when the people swarm the streets and the internet is involved, that's automatically a good thing. It's now a progressive I think, thing. yeah, necessarily, yeah. like necessarily, if the internet's involved and the people are on the streets, that's that's like history. That's like Napoleon on the horse, like moving yeah. moving us forward towards you know the promised land of democracy, freedom, whatever it is that you believe is going to come next. Uh, but by the end of the twenty twenty, you know, indeed by like you know after like. January 6th and January 8th, we think probably the exact opposite. If there's a swarm of people that see a viral post and then, you know, rush mm-hmm. to on the Capitol for for some reason. Uh, so, yeah, eventually when I start working on this book full-time in 2019, I go back to the where it kind of starts, which is Tunisia. Yeah, I mean, you cover you cover a number of different, I think, pretty notable protest movements that happened throughout the last decade. Starting Tunisia, but also with Turkey, Egypt, uh, South Korea, Hong Kong. Uh, but I think I think starting with Tunisia is important because mm-hmm. that was the beginning of the so-called air. I love calling it the so-called Arab yeah, Spring. Yeah, I never say Arab Spring straight up in my own voice. You have to book. say so-called. I say so-called. You have yeah. to say so-called because that well, people, is a, that a is lot a, of Arab like people that I interview get really mad at me if you just yeah. It's, actually, it's it's a Western it was a, an, it's yeah. a Western appellation or whatever <laughs> whatever you would call it. It's a Western name for it. Yeah. Um. But but I I, I think that is uh, I mean I, we made this point on the show before and I feel like a lot of listeners probably know this by now but like. There, that, that sort of d- promise of like digital revolutions or like this connectivity that right. the internet was bringing us and this you know this proliferation of images you know uh, you know just transmitted from person to person uh, was going to bring a progressive change just like that was that moment right, right? that and like the 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 pro- the uh, protests in Iran uh, around the same Yeah, 2008 was like the real beginning. That was, exactly. that was the first time all my friends put a square of a certain color on their Facebook <laughs> Yes, but not the last. <laughs> I feel like 2020 unfortunately killed that, but hopefully did, in like yeah. another, when things cycle back, like in another eight years. It'll be when we all have our little avatars. We'll all yeah. have to do something. We'll all yeah. kiss it'll, makeup. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so one thing that, that, uh, 
becomes pretty apparent with the Tunisia stuff is like the promise of the digital revolution, right? right. Like you get, you know, you have this very viral incident of the of the uh, the I think he's a fruit or vegetable seller yeah. burning himself to or self immolating, mm-hmm. uh, and then that you know that bringing a lot of people out onto the streets. Um, in this sort of like, in many ways, like a leaderless sort of just like mass protest movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the case of Tunisia, you do point out that there is a Hojas party, which yes. I've always, that's been one of my little factoids that I know that there's a, a fairly sizable Hojas party in Tunisia. They, they are not, I mean, they're not huge, but they they were involved at the very beginning. The, the workers party like is probably one of many, many things that without which the Tunisian revolution would not have gotten over the line from, you know, a regional rebellion in Sidi Bouzid to something in the capital. Like, and, I, you know, I spent a bunch of time with the, the these, this part of the, the, the yeah, the Hojist Tunisian Workers' Party. They were, like, they were really, they were a big part of it. The fact that there was a big uh, Tunisian labor union was yeah. a part of it. Um, but as you point out, like, the story that gets told, especially around the world, is more about the of Facebook, like media. Yes. Yeah. Whereas, really, if you go and look, like all oh, these people had been like organizing, fighting, and trying to form networks of people in the interior of like brutally neoliberalized Tunisia for for a long time. But the thing that really becomes important, especially in like the pages of the New York Times or on CNN, is the existence of like Facebook uh, coordination and like yeah. the internet. And that becomes like the 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 actual of of all the Arab Spring stuff, especially in the or I guess the early Arab Spring stuff, uh, that becomes sort of the story in the Western media. Is like, yeah, they have like these local demands and they, you know they're wonderful. We support them, whatever, like <laughs> or we support the ones that we report about. Um, <laughs> but but really like we're actually just entering this beautiful new progressive age of the internet, which is so funny because that is such the opposite of really the kind of the good liberal attack now, which is that that Facebook especially, but the but social media in general is just like it's only for misinformation. Right. Um, yeah. But at the time, it was like it was the new progressive tool, and like mm-hmm. you know, I think you mentioned I, I can't remember who wrote this. Uh, some columnist being like, we don't need you know, it's no bullets anymore. It's like we're firing off posts and stuff <laughs> like that. Yeah, like the yeah the Che Guevara of the twenty first century is the network. Yes. Uh, yes. Which is, it's just so funny in retrospect. Cause yeah. not, like, it's just, it's That's the exact opposite. Yeah, the idea was that the internet was going to Americanize the world. And mm-hmm. then especially after 2016, the, the, inter- the narrative is that like, the internet is the vehicle through which like, bad other countries are conquering America, yes. like, whether it be <laughs> Russia or China. Or, mm-hmm. yeah. But it is funny because the internet did really Americanize the world. I think it did. Yeah. And, I think and, it did. And something that you, you, are, you take pains to point out in this book is that it really sort of almost homogenized in many ways or at least drew um, a lot of these different protests happening in wildly different parts of the world, drew inspiration in terms of like tactics and messaging from other protests that were right. happening across the world too. And so what were some similarities that you noticed between all of these like, you know, different demands, different people, different places, but like similar sort of, I guess you would say vibes. Yeah. What, are the, what, are the, what are the similarities you notice between a lot of these? Movies? Yeah, so uh, like with the internet, especially social media, I think you did, you did see a kind of a flattening of space and time, which in some ways could allow for this really cool, like very inspiring transfer of solidarity from one country to another, like contagion of revolutionary elan yeah. of spirit. And that's, I think, like entirely positive. Um, but like the type of protest that I choose to describe in this book, I think we have kind of already ske- sketched it out, but it tends to be uh, apparently spontaneous digitally coordinated, horizontally organized, mm-hmm. leaderless, mass protests in a public square 
or in public uh, space. And this is very far from the only type of what, the only way that you can respond to government injustice or that you can push for change in a given society. But this became quite hegemonic, indeed perhaps seeming as if it's the only natural way to act in the 2010s. Yes. And this really happens after Tahrir Square. So Tunisia, while in Tunisia, you kind of, if you if you are paying attention, if you actually know a little bit about Tunisia, and again, a lot of the people that showed up from whatever, like, you know, uh, uh, NBC News did not. You could identify, okay, that's that party, that's that union, that's that Maoist like, mid-level tendency in that union, which was mm-hmm. quite important to flipping them in the final instance. That's the professional society, that's the lawyer's organization. Whereas in Egypt, what you had was when the protests, which again, were organized by very dedicated and hardworking uh, activists, some on the radical left, some who really believed in building a party, and uh, believed in building uh, a working class power, they did not plan for them to explode as big as they did. So yeah. they ended up being able, in a strange position where uh, after the first protest on January 25th, uh, way more people come than they expect. On January 28th, the police like lose control of the city. They like flee. Yeah. And they're in a position to do basically whatever they want at that point. But what they do is they take Tahrir Square um, because in these moments of like revolutionary possibility, you tend to do what you know and that's what they knew. Yeah. Um, a lot of people that I spoke to said, well, I wish we would have done this. I wish we would have taken like uh, over the television station and set up like yeah. a revolutionary camp. This is some of my advice. You always want to get communications. You want communications? those unlocked. Block the highways out of the city. No one in or out. <laughs> yeah, Interior I mean, ministry. Inter- of course, yeah, and armories, yeah. Yeah, so, so there's things they could have done, but what they do is they take the square. And in this square, there is kind of this, 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 this apparent leaderlessness is kind of, you know, it's, it is fundamental to the, the configuration of what's going on in the square. You can't really say who's doing it exactly. I mean, if you look closely, the Muslim Brotherhood is probably the most organized group in there, but there's all kinds of people. And then this is the dynamic that really becomes important that you just described. Like, a lot of the people that I spoke to that had been working behind the scenes, like, taking huge risks for a very long time, like, watched in horror as, like, a viral post or someone that's good at Twitter or someone that gets selected by the Western media become the de facto spokespeople for mm-hmm. uh, uh, something which is supposed to be everyone in the square. And this, this like scene, which is like undeniably inspiring. Like if you rewatch like all these, you know, like the footage and the films, even if you have this like you know critical view that I come to the book with, it's like, oh yeah, that is you know that that you could see how that scene broadcast to the whole world of every kind of Egyptian coming together in the square to call for the overthrow of a dictator. Uh, like, like lesbians and communists and Islamists and like Salafists, everybody's coming together uh, and like breaking bread together. Um, that really inspires quite a lot of other movements around the world. And yeah. whether or not they're directly inspired, because like Occupy, Occupy Wall Street is directly inspired. The Umbrella Movement is a copy of Occupy Wall Street, Wall Street yeah. which is directly inspired. Or in the case of Brazil and in, um, Turkey, for example, or even I think Ukraine to some extent in 2013, even if they weren't, even if they drew on local traditions of contention, they tend to be viewed by the media, which matters so much to the, uh, the ultimate outcome of the protests, as the same kind of deal. But like doing the same kind of deal that you would do to overthrow an, uh, uh, a dictator in Egypt, where quite a lot of the people would have were, were for that, really is, brings up a lot of strange questions mm-hmm. when confronted with a d- democracy, even if it's, if it's an imperfect democracy like Ukraine or if it's a democracy like Brazil, where like actually really Dilma wanted as much as anyone on the streets to keep the price of a bus down. She actually had pushed to keep that down herself. And so the degree to which 
social media flattens our, our our perception of space and time, allows for a transfer of solidarity, but also like the adoption of stuff that looks really, really cool on TV and is represented to the world in a certain way by people like me who were, should not have been in a position to be interpreting anything for anyone. We did not know, we, we did not have the sort of intellectual or material resources to be doing that. We, should, we had no business and we failed very often in doing that. Um, and I think all of that adds, has, has a lot of consequence for the rest of the way the rest of the, the decade unfolds. I think the flattening you mentioned in terms of social media is really important to this because so many of these protests almost seem like a real life um, reflection of the, the sort of promise of social media, right? Mm-hmm. This kind of like this, this de- democratization, this direct democracy, which is – don't get me started on that. But one of my most hated <laughs> uh, little trends uh, that, uh, that gets, kind of gets brought up uh, very often. But there's like this, this horizontalism, this like flattening, uh, this democratization that comes from social media is like reflected in these like large leaderless movements. And that's seen in itself – as like a progressive thing, right? Mm-hmm, right? Whatever the aims of the movement are, the fact that like a lot of people of different beliefs are getting together in a central area uh, without any clear direction or leader is itself seen as a progressive right. thing by the media that is reporting on it, right. right? And I'm pointing at you, but that's just because I'm making a point. I'm not. I'm one of. I was one of them. I absolutely <laughs> am. I am that. Like I. There, that's another part. I mean, go back to what like Liz is like first question. That also. That's like another reason that I put myself in this book is because I think that like I was in a position to know enough about how news is produced to be very critical of the way that like my class, like foreign correspondents act in these very important moments. Well, that's, that's really yeah. what I wanted to ask because something that you, you, you bring up several times in the book is that like, if your movement does not like have its, like does not select its own leaders, does not select its own representation, its own spokesman, then the media will do that for you. Or someone will, yeah. That, or someone will do that for you. Yeah, someone will do that often for you. Often the media, often the state of dependent depends on who, who's the most powerful, like yeah. who has the biggest microphone in that, you know. And given. a lot of times those are one and the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, tell us. Like, can you can you give us some examples of like of what we're talking about here, right? Because throughout the book, several times you do point out like the media selects these spokesmen, or the state will will select people to meet with. Mm-hmm. Why is that? And like, why is that important? Why does it matter that that is the thing that's happening? Yeah, there's a really famous essay that like indeed these Brazilians like pointed me two years ago, but everyone sort of cites it. It's called the tyranny of structurelessness back in. The seventies. Heavily recommend anybody involved. It's like in two pages. It's work. great. It's uh, really it's, it's, it's zippy. Wonderful. It's good. And the basic contention is something that she lived through in the I think it was like that would have been called the women's liberation movement as a feminist activist in the U.S. Is that when you insist that there is no structure, when you insist that there's no leaders, just you know, no matter how good your intentions are, if the group's big enough some leader or, or structure will emerge, but often that leader or structure has not been selected in a self-conscious or democratic way. Often it's just the person with the most like social capital in a small group, or if it's a very big group, it might be the person with the most like financial capital or with like a really, really big situation, mm-hmm. the people with like all the guns and all the, all the TV stations. Um, and so as you said, like, in some cases in this book, like in Brazil, the M- MPI Lee is like horizontalist. They like really believe in... yeah in uh, full horizontality. And in other cases, you just kind of get concrete horizontality, which is the, you know, 
even though many Egyptians would have loved to have an organized revolutionary party, just like it wasn't there because of the decimation of civil society under neoliberalism and, and, and Mubarak. Um, but to the extent that these things did exist, and this is like, you know, the Jack Schenker, who, who was a Guardian correspondent at the time, he talks about this in his book. The prefigurative elements, the ones that seem most structuralist, seem most leaderless, are the ones that are perhaps least um, productive, but they're the ones that are the most likely to get you foreign a positive foreign media coverage. Because if the people in the square, I mean, if you like, just like a thought experiment, if like the people, quote unquote, in the square are clearly united behind a revolutionary party of one type or another with clear goals, odds are that's going to be something different than what like CNN wants them to have as a goal. Yes. Because <laughs> this is another slippage that happens all the time is that the, like, the, the media outlets with the biggest microphones in, on the planet in the era of like sort of like Americanized inter- like internet, uh, US global hegemony, don't understand the like properly third worldist aspirations of a lot of people on the streets. Like if you ask people what they really, really wanted in Egypt, uh, a lot of the time it would be like economic advancement, which would be more like we want to live like the first world in the sense like we want to be as rich as you. Yeah. Whereas often CNN looks at this and they're like, no, no matter what the what is happening, it's just like, oh, they want democracy, which means they just want to ally with the United States. Yeah. Whereas what they want often is like, no, give us your money. Like this, the global system is... Uh, stacked against us, we demand to be accepted into the like we like whatever promise that can ever be made to us to be allowed to enter the rich first world. That's what we want. Yeah. And then the other side of this strange like you know this this loop of of representation and re-representation. The other side of it is like oh yeah they want to be like on our side in whatever it is that we want you know uh, whenever that means uh, at the time. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about how a lot, you know, going through the, as you're sort of like breaking down and critiquing all these kind of various movements, that in each instance they really show the sort of um, limitations of the historical moment in which they're produced. Mm -hmm. And so much of that has to do with our early entry into social media, Mm -hmm. right? And this new technology that I think we didn't, that we were very, I mean, I say we because I'm, you know, I don't want to, it's not, we're not accusing anyone here, but like that we, everyone was very um, excited about. And it did feel like, oh, maybe this can be a tool for organizing. This can be this neutral mm-hmm. sort of space mm-hmm. that as if technology can never be neutral or, you know, um, used in that way. And instead what we see is it kind of produce and reproduce that same, you know, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that the kind of networked, horizontalism that the structure of the internet produced also produces the social movements that emerge out of it and receive the popularity from it. Like there's a, you know, that's obviously, um, you know, there's a bit of a connection there. Yeah, I think what I say at the end, slightly annoyingly, is that there is an elective affinity between pre-existing ideological currents that like draw on like libertarian or anarchist or, or new left tendencies uh, there's an elective affinity between those pre-existing currents and the like material structure, the like built environment of the internet that we get. And again, as you point out, like it's not like it's not it wasn't the only internet that was possible. Like the, the, right. that tool could have been controlled and structured in many many ways. We got an internet that was structured by capitalist firms embedded in California ideology and California like uh, uh, and U.S. Uh, uh, in the political economy of the United States, and like at like a moment of 
you know, sort of peak neoliberalism. Like, you know, who knows how, how things could have, you know, what if the invention, the internet was invented in the 1930s and the Soviet <laughs> Union and the United States both had different, you know, on the yeah. one hand, yeah, you have like absolutely. a Keynesian internet where they would have never, even even on the U.S. side, would have never considered privatizing it in the way that they, they did automatically in the 90s and right. then the Soviets doing, you know, like who knows what Chile would have cooked up if they had been able to continue experimenting <laughs> for her. Uh, as they were in uh, under Allende, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Like there was, there was this, there, these things combined uh, uh, to to create this combination of of yeah. What did you call it at the very beginning? This uh, uh, an incubator incubator that you got on the streets of June 2013 in Brazil, and like the kinds of things that popped up in slightly different ways mm-hmm. uh, across the. The, the decade and the things that were often viewed in the same way even when they happened in profoundly different national circumstances. And this, like, again, back to Brazilian, like, so it's like what I think about the most is like no one knew what to do. With, like literally knew, no one knew what to do with what was happening. Like yeah. the president didn't know what to do with what was happening. The group that caused this mass explosion didn't know what to do with what was happening. The mayor of Sub- – no one just – no one knew what, how to respond to this, this thing that had, that had exploded. And everybody found their way, their way, their different paths out of it. And the right ultimately wins the battle to define uh, the future, you know, or at least the, the, the years that come. Yeah, it's funny because it's almost like uh, there was a mirror between people Dilma and in power wanting the same thing as the people on the streets, and yet yeah. both of them again in in sort of mirror image, not knowing what to do. Yeah, it was a very bizarre situation. I bring up the thing about the technology though because I think that, and and you don't do this in your book, which I think is good, but I do think there's a tendency when you're sort of like looking back at these things to be like, oh, if you'd only done this, yeah. then it would have turned out differently when it's just not that simple. No, you have to reimagine an entirely different configuration of totally. political and economic oh, uh, yeah, and party forces. You have to imagine, reimagine like the past 50 years. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But, I, but saying that, I do think that you offer some very potent, we'll say, criticisms of the horizontalist approach mm-hmm. And kind of breaking down why, you know, as we're talking about here. But, I mean, you do really, I mean, at the beginning of the book, you go back into, like, the new left, right? Where a lot of these ideas, again, from America, really kind of get cooking in the 60s and then just don't stop. (laughs) Yeah, they just Um, keep cooking right until up until Seattle 99. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and you even go back further to talk about Lenin a little bit and kind of a more centralist approach and what he saw. So maybe we can go a little bit in that direction Maybe what some of those criticisms are. Maybe the ones what that we come out learn. at the very end of the book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I try not to. I mean, I try, the, the reason that I go try to go in chronological order is I really want to like show where this comes from and why people decided to take the positions that they did because it all makes yeah. a lot of sense at the time. And I don't think anybody wants to hear from like me, Vincent Bevins, in 2023, being like, "This is what the right way. This is the like logical problems with any given approach to." to a political organization. We watch what happens over the whole decade. And over the, that decade, hopefully we like, you know, hopefully if the, the the book does what it's supposed to do, the reader like sees what unfolds along with the actual participants. And yeah. at the very end of the book, I try not to like deliver again these these final retrospective analyses in my own voice. I could try to find the most eloquent. And luckily, they, like, there's a lot of them. They're very eloquent. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they spent 10 years thinking say. about this stuff. Absolutely. From, you know, from Egypt to Brazil to Ukraine. And you get overlapping themes. Um, you get an over, like, to be um, wildly oversimplistic 
you often see, if not a return to the historical Lenin, like some people come across, come away from this book just being like, read Lenin, read when is to be done. Like yeah. go back to the historical Lenin. I think Lenin. we've said that on our podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's really the simplest solution to most problems. <laughs> um, <laughs> some people, that's explicitly what they come back to. Some people come back to something that you, I could call, again, maybe perhaps annoyingly, theoretically, like a kind of a anti-anti-Leninism, which is like, when in the 60s they just tried to reject every single thing that the Bolsheviks did because they didn't like the way the Soviet Union yeah. turned out, you end up throwing out a lot of things that work. And if you just define yourself as the absolute inverse of what you thought the mistakes of the Soviet Union were, you're going to be end up like really limiting yourself intellectually. You have to, you know, as the MST um, says, and I spent a lot of the summer with them, and they like ironically kind of, not ironically because this was on purpose, sort of. I think also provide an eloquent answer to the question of organization, but that won't come out until later this year. But what they say is you have to drink for many fountains. Like you can't just throw out, even if you are the particular type of new left actor that rejected this legacy of the Soviet Union in the second half of the 20th century, a lot of people from that long legacy told me by 2021, 2022, you just can't throw out, you just you can't just do the exact opposite. Some people end up in the same place. Some people say, you know, like some of the people in the book remain committed to the ideals they had in 2010 and hopefully like, I reproduce also faithfully the way the reasons that they still do so, but that is a um, that tendency was generalized. The, the tendency to to say get as organized as you can before the thing happens. Don't try to form something out of the viral yes. post or the moment of heat that yeah. is going to get everyone on the streets. Because I know across a very very set of different circumstances in the decade. A general rule for interpreting what happens is that the groups that are most organized and best at real collective action before the thing starts end up doing the best out of it. Um, and real collective action, historically, if you look at it, that often means some kind of some kind of decision-making process. That some often means some kind of formal structure for deciding on what is to be done uh, quickly. It's very hard to get a group of people to reach consensus all at once about. Uh, a change in tactics when when situations change very quickly, and also when you are committed to this like total horizontalism that everyone's equal, as the MPL was, they had no idea how to integrate. And this is something that happened with SDS back in the '60s. They did not know how to integrate huge amounts of people that actually came wanting to join their group. Huge, like there was a moment where they were riding really high, and you know people all across Brazil were really inspired by the MPL, and they said, "We want to join the MPL. We want to be in the MPL." And so there's two options in that situation. They could either create a two-tier system of the MPL, which, like, no, that's Leninism. That's a Leninist deviation. You can't right, do that. Right. If you were to create a, a one-tier where there are people that, because they knew that their their dedication was not something that everybody could. It's not replicable. Yeah, yeah. like, regular people aren't going to go to 14-hour meetings every single day for Absolutely. six months. So, but they thought if we formed, like, the, you know, central committee, uh, and, or the, like, <laughs> or, you know, just, like, the, or like... vanguard. Yeah, or yeah. Like, if, if we form, like, you know, the... The the organizing committee, which like the M MST is totally fine with having, if we form like the organizing committee, but then like the regular members, like the rank and file trainees, that's Leninism. Yeah. But then if we let everybody in, then what is the MPL? Because if you let in one thousand people, then the original forty people that have built this thing together for you know forty to eighty people that have built this thing for the last uh, eight years, they no longer have any say over what it is. It just becomes you know. The more people that join, it just becomes whatever Brazil is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that across uh, the decade, and and uh, I could be repeating myself now, so feel free to free to, to remove it. Is a generalized tendency to 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 
understand that representation of some kind in some kind of structure is probably inevitable. So the task then is just to try to build the best organizations, mm -hmm. build the best structures, build the best means for acting collectively and democratically that you can, given the complexity and very imperfect nature of, of the global society right now. One thing that becomes pretty apparent in reading the book, too, is that um, a lot of these groups, once they realize, because I think a lot of people understood pretty quickly on during the protests that, like, okay, like, maybe some of these, like, more horizontalist groups, like, we actually don't have the ability to manage this mm -hmm. or to get people to sort of join us. And, like, th this is going in directions that we had, we had not necessarily foreseen. Right. Uh, and that are oftentimes... The exact opposite of what we might have wanted, especially in the case of, you know, something like Brazil right. or, or Egypt. Um, but, uh, it, you know, you, you make the point is that, like, if you create a vacuum or if a vacuum comes in, into being, something is going to fill that vacuum. Right. Like, there is, no, there is no vacuum, basically. Like, yeah. you, you might have one for a couple of days, but, like, that's getting filled quickly. And something that, that I, I notice is that, like... And this is even just beyond, uh, you know, what you write in your book is that like a lot of people on the left, I think, don't take themselves very seriously in like a real way, right? Like there, there's an, an allergy to power uh, and to organization that that uh, that is apparent even on just the, the level of their own organizations, right? Like uh, this horizontalist sort of tendency that has has kind of come out of the new left but really uh, metastasized in the 90s and then now is essentially like, even if a organization claims otherwise, often very much at the fore. Um, you know, if, if you can't, if you can't uh, be willing to take power, somebody who is willing to take power will. And people are generally not attracted to organizations that seem allergic to power mm -hmm. and to seem to, to, to not want it. Um, and, and, and one thing that I, I think a lot of, of people think uh, on the left in America as well is that, like, if you just blow something up, like, that's all you really need to think about. Right. And, I, and uh, people don't often actually blow things up. That's actually usually the territory of, uh, of people on the right. But, like, if you, if you create as much chaos as possible and, you, you know, you just destroy something, burn it all down, that, like, something – spontaneously right. beautiful and like uh, uh, wonderful will, will happen in the aftermath because you were beautiful and you were wonderful in your tactics to yeah. achieve that. Just like one perfect riot, you know, like exactly. one weird <laughs> trick to end yeah. history for all times. If we mm -hmm. just do the perfect riot and it gets big enough, that's it. That's the, that's the, that's the end. Yeah. They're just, you know, the end of the movie and then ha like um, happily ever after, ever after, which is like, you know, it sounds like a bit silly, but like, so, like as, tragically and like stupid as it sounds and like I'm not trying to be um, like to to shit on people that like risk their lives and things but like some people were like explicitly inspired by movies that end like that like yes. V for Vendetta if you like I went back and I watched V for Vendetta oh, uh, horrible which, like, I, <laughs> I do like recommend because like it literally just how ends. does it hold up it's crazy because wasn't it good I know, but it's so it's weird crazy. because it was like, because it became, it had such a like mimetic power. I yeah. mean, and you talk about it explicitly in the book, like, because there's the kid who puts on the mask right. and goes viral. I mean, in one of the first, the first, in one of the first instances of virality, <laughs> like, <laughs> literally goes viral listing these political demands. Right. 
that then get picked up by like Globo or someone in yeah. Brazil and become he basically becomes a spokesperson for oh, this. Absolutely, he defines the the nature of the streets for like for, yeah, to for some it. extent for a few days at least. Yeah. Yeah, in Brazil during this movement, and it's just some kid. I mean, you you talk to him in the book, and you're like, wait, so where did you get those ideas? And he's like, oh, I just made it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like. What? Stuff that he read on Facebook and like right like on the Facebook feeds of like center right or right wing and it comes to like define how like the 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 sort of like protest movement like starts targeting the sort of like corrupt nature of Brazilian this like very nebulous kind yep. of feeling of corruption about the state of Brazil. Yeah, there's a def- again there's an elective affinity totally between the concerns of the center right media that once they decide that this is a good thing. Yeah, and I don't think this is a conspiratorial. This happens in a conspiratorial way because I talked to Haddad, like the who was the mayor at the time, about this, and I was like literally in the newsroom of like the Brazil's yeah. most mainstream newspaper. I don't think this happens in a conspiratorial way, but when they're trying to like supply reasons for why this is a good thing in the like five minutes, then like after they said it was a really bad thing, <laughs> they're going to come up with things that just like there are their own deep ideological assumptions. Absolutely, because like, okay, you're just literally riffing on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, you have the guy like uh, I can't remember which newscaster it was, but yeah. he's like looking at live a live Dateno. poll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where the the like viewers are saying that they support the protesters, and he had just been like speechifying about how like the police need to kind of like beat all these people up, right. and he just immediately has to find something in his own little like bourgeois brain <laughs> yeah. to make sense of it. Yeah, why is it on good? the fly? Because yeah. he's riffing like everyone else in the media, yeah, exactly. and so of course his own ideological biases I mean, are going to come This happened out. with me. I only spent like one sentence on this in the book, but like over the next few days, people like me had to go like out into the crowd. Mm-hmm. I mean, had to. This was like the task very stupidly handed to us by the particular configuration of media production and like the global economy. But people like me went out into the crowd and were like, well, what are you here for? What are you here for? Like put a little video together. Mm-hmm. Dom Phillips, like a friend of mine who worked like worked with me, he was like like tragically killed in the Amazon last year. He like went out f- like for this blog that I w- was like editing at the Brazilian newspaper. Everybody went out and like spent a couple hours being like, well, what do you want? What do you, what do you want? And I found very quickly, again, without any of us like I think not consciously trying to impose our own ideological vision on this, we all came up with explanations that like, oh yeah, lo and behold, it's kind of like reflects what Vincent's politics are versus mm. what Dama's politics are versus yeah. what Jose's politics are versus what Datena's politics are, which was this, you know, very populist kind of like law and order TV personality that was like, yeah, as you said, like in one second had to figure out <laughs> how to, in his ideology, say this is a good thing. Um, and so anti-corruption. So the, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but before the explosion in June 2013, corruption was listed as the biggest problem in Brazil by like 4 or 5% of people. And this jumps to 21%, 22%. And this is something that there is, again, an elective affinity between this one guy in the V for Vendetta mask mm. and the media that like these types of demands more than right. the expansion of the welfare state. Because it's easier that, to sell. It's easier to talk about. And it doesn't cost any money to elites. Right. Just like, you know, one don't want to get jump ahead out of into like a, a more complicated and controversial uprising but like in Ukraine when you ask for like economic justice and culture war elites can deliver culture war for free economic yeah. justice is going to be a problem for them mm-hmm. so if you have a movement which is asking for both de-oligarchization and some kind of reconfiguration of the national identity or, or some kind of a some kind of more formal let's say uh, any kind of demand across the the, the 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 planet indeed that doesn't require elites to give up any of their money you're going to get the one that doesn't require yeah. the elites to give up any of their money and so yeah V, v from Vendetta like I, like I rewatched it it was like it's when did cr- it come out again? 
Oh, I think it's like 2008, 2010. I think that's, it's before 2010. It's like 2006, 7, 8, 5. It's crazy. It's crazy that Natalie Portman... Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so, wait, wait, you rewatched it. You should what? rewatch it. Well, wait, because on the one hand, in the film, I mean, I, like some people like the 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 graphic novel. I haven't like people. Some people defend that as much better than the film. I don't know, but it was the film that really went, was famous. Yeah. Come on, yeah. And uh, the entire revolution is planned by one guy who just like puts together like shocking, like blow your mind with truth video clips that like he like pull, like plays through viral videos, huh? Viral videos, yeah, yeah. And then uh, and then the final scene, like. Swore like swarms like huge crowds of like men, you know, they're all like the same height, so they're probably, you know, I guess it's men and women, but like just it seems like just like huge crowds of men in this scary mask just march on parliament and then movie's over. Like, yeah, that's it, that's the revolution. <laughs> when and it's, it's, a like, spo- it's a spontaneous uprising, yeah, yeah, everyone like one man provides the spark for literally like all of Britain to march on parliament. And then the way the movie ends is you're led to believe that like that's good somehow. Like, I don't mm-hmm. know, like now again, 2023. You saw, you see, like thousands of men march on Parliament in a weird mask from a movie they saw because of something they saw on the internet. You would probably think this is quite a dangerous yeah. thing that's happening. But no, you have V for Vendetta, and like, you know, this is something a lot of pr- mm. protesters told me, like very, you know, um, like very wistfully, like you know, we f- looked too much to Hollywood mm-hmm. and not enough to of like the very complex and difficult science of, like, revolutionary history. Like, you, like yeah. we had, there was no, you know, like, again, back to the MST, just because I spent the summer with them. They have, like, centers of cadre formation where anybody that wants to join, they're, like, especially if they're into this kind of stuff, they're, like, invited to go spend months, like, reading the history of social movements and the things that work and get trained by people that are around for years and years and years. When everything just comes together really, really quickly, you kind of reach for what's in the air, and in the area of social media, it's often like the thing that gets your blood going, like the thing that gets you all riled up that like moves to the top of the pile. Which that, I mean, you talk about that feeling a lot throughout the book. And I feel like you're a little bit of two minds about it, mm-hmm. maybe because you also experienced it in right. 2013. And I know the brace, I mean, we've talked about this. I mean, that feeling like something's changing or that you're in the throes of history, right. like that you're in that moment is both... I mean, I think you're but you're sympathetic because right. I think that that is it's understandable that people are drawn to that and and draw, you know find inspiration from that feeling and it is it's like a euphoria it's it feels like it's unbelievable but it's also a really dangerous feeling mm-hmm. you know you can get drunk with it basically yeah. you're drunk on it yeah and because it. It can be the thing that that's the only thing you're after, right. right? Or the only thing you know how to chase is that feeling, as opposed to the deep hard the hard work of actually, you know, yeah. studying the movements and trying to build something more sustainable mm-hmm. than just the fucking feeling like you're changing something without yeah. having the responsibility to actually do anything with it. Yeah, and I mean, in 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 the defense of that feeling, I think that. There are tragically few opportunities in like contemporary life to feel like you are really working and you're, yeah. you're connected with other people and we're making a difference because like Absolutely. by all accounts we're not working we're not in parts of community we're not acting collectively we're totally individualized and like we're not making a difference or like this book in many ways like just deals with and sort of arises out of I think a real crisis of representation it's not just mm-hmm. that like certain like anarchist inspired groups wanted to get rid of representation like it's clearly not working so this these moments where you can actually feel like oh my god me and my fellow like like brothers and sisters are like actually changing something right now 
that the reason it's so incredibly powerful is because we never get to feel it and like ideally yeah. we should be feeling it all the time but that, as you point out it doesn't mean that that feeling necessarily puts food on the table for for people in the long term it, you know it may be a glorious victory against the police tonight Mm-hmm. But then the police go home and then they just go back to the street the next day. I mean, in the case of Brazil, this was, again, very, very strange. Like, the, the protesters and the police were, like, going to battle. But, like, the, the real forces of power that control things in Brazilian society didn't really care about the outcome, really. It was mm-hmm. like, okay, well, whoever wins tonight, like, we're going to hire more military police and we're going to use them to reproduce the conditions of capitalism in this country. And, indeed, like, the mayor who they're, like, technically, at, like, fighting – isn't actually in control of the police. Um, so, yeah, I go back and forth, and, and indeed, like, the, the interviewees go back and forth. Some people say, you know, it can be like a drug in the sense that you there's a hangover. And, you know, a lot, you know, a lot of people, and, like, I'm very grateful to the people that did sit down with me because they often shared, like, going through years afterwards of, like, real depression or, or, or the, like, sort of PTSD of, like, yeah. what actually happened after that, the initial fever broke, and, like, or the people that they realized, you know, that they lost in one way or another. Um, and so, yeah, I absolutely go back and forth. On the one hand, I think we need to build a world in which these, 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 this feeling is, is, more, is more common. But um, history has shown uh, it has to be part of a bigger package of strategic action and organizational thinking. Well, what you're describing there is, 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 is what you mentioned several times in the book, which is prefigurative politics. Right. Um, and that is that's something I've encountered many times in my life. But that that there's this there's this I, I would say I guess globalized tendency. Although I I mostly associate with people that I've done battle with in political circles uh, over my lifetime. Um, is that like if you create this like perfect uh, egalitarian um, you know. Uh, I, I don't I want to call it beautiful because I've never seen anything remotely uh, approaching beauty uh, in any of these circles. But, um, you know, this like egalitarian, uh, you know, equitable society or equitable group that is like trying to overthrow the system, then that will naturally follow. Um, and that that has obviously borne itself out not to be true. But but something that you or as, as history has, has borne that out to be false. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the fuck sentence I'm saying there, but I feel like <laughs> listeners know what I'm saying. Uh, but one thing that becomes very apparent is that like it, 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 it is that the the organizations that these people are fighting against or competing next to don't have any such qualms right. about about using uh, tr- I would say traditional methods of organization to get what they want. Right. And something that like. You mentioned this in one of the final chapters, but like, uh, you know, a tactic has been since time immemorial for uh, whatever hegemonic group is in control of societies to divide and conquer the people that that are against it. Um, and something that is just so fascinating to me since like the 1960s, 1970s, really since the new left, is like that has been something that um, many people who seek to change that society will do themselves already. They're like, we will divide and <laughs> ourselves as, as already. Like, infinitely. <laughs> infinitely. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's funny because, you know, people, you hear all this, like, this rhetoric around class war, right? Around class war. But what happens in a war? You fight battles. And what do you right. fight battles with? You fight battles with an army. And how are armies almost have been organized since, you know, we began to have uh, structures of organization society. That is with full uh, consensus. Full full (laughs) consensus and everybody agrees. Like, listen, um, some of the femmes have been talking that like some of this has been a little... No, but what you have is like, you have a structure, right? 
And so much of this, I mean, you talk very early on in the book, too, about how, uh, and we've discussed on this program today, uh, how there's this, like, weird digital reflection, like, the the organizational structures that appear mirror, in many ways, the digital structures that they they kind of come out of. and and it's it's what's fascinating to me is that for for a the left uh, you I hear many people sort of claim to be scholars of history right mm-hmm. scholars of revolutionary movements and so many lessons of successful revolutions are disregarded in favor of the of the uh, sort of ecstatic joy of the 1960s and the the lessons of like personal self fulfillment from that era mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's fascinating to me. Just this sort of uh, like what I was talking about earlier, this like allergy to power, but even this like the the idea that somebody giving you an order is fundamentally wrong, and what that says about somebody who claims that they want to be part of collective action to me, I mean that that says that you actually don't want that, mm-hmm. um, and then you you know like the the, the you, you end up in this deeply undemocratic in in reality, but highly democratic in rhetoric, uh, things like these like popular assemblies where everybody has to give consensus mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, I mean, it's just, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, like, I think, yeah, I think you, yeah, obviously you listen, like, I'm glad, like, I hope that the, even the things that are in this book that are like about faraway countries, hopefully they sort of rhyme with, Sort of experiences that different people have around the world, and sounds like you've had. <laughs> oh, I've had plenty. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but even I mean even even it's funny though because you know you talk about how the the sort of spokesman right right will be self-selected or selected by the media, and like I'm not unaware of the fact that like just given the fact that we have a podcast right. that is 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 fairly popular mm-hmm. that like somehow we become like de facto spokespeople or whatever. I mean, that's not actually how we view ourselves whatsoever. But, like, that is how – that is, like – it's funny. In America, it it becomes very grouped along, like, media consumption lines. Yeah. I would say elsewhere in the world because as kind of, like, theme of what we're talking about today, everything is sort of – is a kind of weird funhouse mirror of America. Yeah, yeah. Which a lot of – you know. Yeah. And I think this this work – I think, like – the the dynamic you're just describing is really interesting in its inverse too because when you have a group when your enemies are trying to define you yeah if you don't have an actual message that you have decided upon collectively and presented as this is our message like the Black Panther Party would have like a lot of the original uh, uh, civil rights organizations that inspired the New Left would have it becomes very easy for your enemies to find the stupidest guy in Absolutely. your group and be like oh that's that's who you which is are. what they've done with our podcast <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> Don't look at me. <laughs> what? No, I'm looking at us. You look directly at me. I'm looking around the SEO. No, but I'm sure that everybody who's in a political organization is probably nodding their head, right? Because you have always, I'm sure always the dumbest motherfucker is the one who is like getting pushed to the fore by anybody who's writing about your organization. And this is incredibly easy to happen when you have like a uh, a, a particular type of street explosion. You know, when the hegemonic media or state forces do not... St- they see it as a good thing. They want to discredit it. Now it's incredibly easy to do so. You just find three guys that are doing the dumbest thing that you could ever see. You film them doing it. You send the FBI in to do the dumbest thing that you could ever well, imagine. Yeah, yeah. Too. Yeah. And then you, or you know, whatever the, whatever version of the FBI you have in FBI in Brazil. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you don't like that? that is, no, that is correct. That is actually, that is actually right. Yeah, yeah. Like actually, well, like, I think Social Mod would be very like proud of his association with FBI, FBI or something. Like this I don't know. Yeah, but it's, it becomes incredibly easy to be like, okay, send 
you know, one agent provocateur to like blow, you know, to blow yeah. up the statue that actually is the coolest, you know, the best guy in your country's history. Be like, oh, that's what the movement stands for. Uh, who's going to deny it? You can't because like you have no one that uh, speaks for it. So I'm telling you, you know, the, the media or government of this country, that's who you are. Or you can pick, you know, whatever political tendency you like. You can pick the stupidest nine-second joke from the dumbest podcast that now is extinct and be like, well, that's what that political tendency yeah, yeah. is all about. Uh, and, like, who's going to say that it's not? Because unlike the Black Panther Party, there's no one that says, no, this is the community. Or, like, unlike the MST, there's no one that says the communications sector for the Movement de Saint-Terre has, like, this is our official position on this. And then, like, but that doesn't exist in this, in this, in this particular type of explosion created by sort of globalized neoliberalism and and digital media. Yeah, I don't know if it's like the, an effect of social media, but one thing I really appreciate about appreciate about this book is how seriously you present the effect of the media. Right. And like I don't know yeah. I I feel like even to this day people don't maybe because everyone wants to because of social media everyone either thinks of themselves in a, even in an abstract way as part of the media yeah. or they want to be in the media right. in whatever capacity they think that means or whatever it is. But there is, it's, people do not take seriously the profound ways in which the media can alter pretty much anything yeah. <laughs> and, and change the direction of reality itself and what we perceive to be reality itself. Yeah. I mean, I really do think that. And, you know, you, you use Brazil as a great example, um, but elsewhere as well. And I don't know, I feel like people still don't take that seriously enough. Yeah, I mean, it's like I think there's a risk of overemphasizing the media and like yeah, it becomes, I'm in it the becomes media. a conspiracy, yeah. like a kind of like oh, they'll just change. But at the same time, but yeah, so at the same time, if you think about it, really, human beings can only see what's directly in front of their faces. Like you can, like the only reason that I know that Joe Biden is the president is because of the media. Like I didn't go there to like check with my, like I didn't go to the White House to look. Like the media, we live in such a complex society that we rely on some kind of mediation for everything. Sure. And again, because I'm in it, I probably pay a lot of attention to it. And because this particular strange situation in Brazil where the media representation changed not only the way that the world understood, but the actual material configuration of what was yes. happening in the streets, which happens in a lot of cases elsewhere in the book. That, yeah, I think, you know, uh, you have to be very careful about it because you can go in weird ways and, like, it's because it's everywhere. You, you, can, you can feel like a totalizing force. But, like, you know, there's... There's no reason to protest in the first place without the media. There was that, so there's a reason mm. that there wasn't protests really before the media. It's it's fundamentally a media action in some ways, I think, and so paying very close attention to like like seriously, responsibly analyzing like the political economy, the political economy of media, and who's acting in which ways for what reasons. I think yes, yeah, is you just can't you can't kick that out of the story. Yeah, I mean, you you are very circumspect in the in the book about your own role as a member of the media because you've written for mainstream MSM publications, <laughs> LA Times, <laughs> Washington Post, as you call it, the WAPO, uh, <laughs> and your frequent mention of it in conversation, even if you don't need to mention it. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, do you did you do you come out of this like? With a reexamination of your own role as a, do you still want to be a journalist? I mean, like, how do you how do you feel? I'm asking I'm asking for the the Vincent, your heart. <laughs> yeah, I feel okay. Uh, no, but it's absolutely true that all of my career has been in sort of the mainstream corporate media. Like everything that I've ever done has been come out of like applying those tools to 
things that I ended up finding while working as a like a regular news correspondent, whether it was like the thing that was the, what led me to write about the U.S.-backed mass murder of communists in Indonesia, or to, to reflect on like the very real failures made by like my class um, in uh, over this decade. But it is like weirdly, um, ironically, exactly those tools that I like. Like, yeah. like often, if you just like almost like naively are naively faithful to the idea of like saying what really happened, then you <laughs> you end up uh, uh, like in a decent place. And I think I still think there's sort of an analog. This might sound like a cheap. Um, this might sound like a cheap uh, uh, dodge, but let's see if it actually works. I think that there's actually a kind of an analog between the way that you described that if you just blow something up, you think something's going to come around, which is necessarily better. I think there's an analog to the media and being very critical of the ways that it can go wrong and also thinking that if you just like destroy and all like all of the people whose professional whose profession it is around the world to do their best to tell the stories that like somehow magically that you'll get like a more democratic or independent media because who's going to rush into that power vacuum well there already are oligarchs oligarchs yeah. are rushing into the decimation of media uh can lead to opportunities somehow if you have like a, 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 an actual plan as to how to build things better and some like some of those projects exist but just like Praying for the alt, like the full destruction of of the existing media, I think is going to open the door for a lot of really powerful bad actors. And like, whether we like it or not, and like you know, setting aside like anarcho-primitivist like options, a really complex society needs representation. It needs some kind of journalism. Needs some kind of media. So hopefully, what I'm contributing to <laughs> is the necessary critique of the existing yeah of existing media practice that just like any state, just like any government structure, just like any order needs to be constantly criticized in order to be as good as possible. And while I want it to be better, I'm also sometimes skeptical. Again, this is, that might be a dodge because this is my class that I'm perhaps just like deep down (laughs) defending. But like, I'm sometimes skeptical of the cheerleading for the media and full destruction of actually existing journalism because I think what's going to happen is it, you're just going to get mar- like corporate marketing and advertising pretending to be journalism. Well, I, I think a lot of people do want that on like a sort of instinctual level. Just like you know fuck, what I mean? the, fuck like, these guys. Fuck these guys. Because like which is like you're it's cool. understandable. I, I I like you. I can <laughs> you know I consider you a friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't like a lot of journalists. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but on the other hand, like it is it is just factually true, right? Like if there's no well, media. Then like it's just like what like some rumble show us you know um, it is also factually true that people like don't like uh, like like poll like polling demonstrates this yeah. is like an empirical fact that like people do, do like are rejecting like traditional media structures yeah they yeah. like if this is a real I would be real, surprised yeah. if network television exists in oh, yeah. ten years so I mean this is gonna, I know like, people are gonna call me crazy but we're gonna no, be I, just like streaming YouTube different it's gonna be diffuse media everywhere <laughs> in any kind of way that you can streamed like. Augmented reality in our living rooms, no television screen. Yeah. Of just like some, you know, YouTuber that looks like, you know, just like any, just like our friend, our little friend, yeah, our YouTuber like a hot, saying whatever we want. Charismatic version of someone that we imagine we totally. can hang out with. Yeah. 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 I mean, well, I mean, that'll I, be the next Don Lemon and or it, whatever. It, I, I wasn't saying like, you know, who's going to put us at us as a as a slide on us? We're one of the greatest shows <laughs> in human history. Yeah. Absolutely. But I mean, like, it, you know, to actually to actually be able to do like deep reporting and stuff, you generally need organizational structures. And like, yeah, uh, like you need people to be working yes, full time. Yes, resources too. and institutions. Exactly. Yeah. And this is another thing that, like, again. As imperfect as mainstream foreign 
correspondence always was, as much as that even in the, like, 20th century had a tendency to, to, to reproduce neocolonial dynamics and reproduce, uh, like, narratives which were favorable to, the, like, the, the strongest countries in history. Even compared to that in 2014, 2017, we did a worse job just because we had less resources. So, like, there was already the ideological problem. And then you had, like, a bunch of people that, like, were facing the real possibility that they were going to be fired from their jobs, like, forever. I think that all journalists, like, could be fired forever because journalism could like, yeah. really stop. And this, again, this deepens that tendency. This worsens that dynamic in which the guy that's, you know, happens to be in X country at whatever time is going to say whatever he thinks is going to get him more views, is yeah. going to get him more clicks, is going to hold Absolutely. on to his job. Like, in order for people to do this very, very difficult job um, as well as possible, which is, like, arguably a job that should not be handed off to the external spokespersons yeah. or the the ad hoc sort of uh, microphones that are there. But in order to do that job somehow competently, you have to have like several people that really know the history of a given country and have full-time like job stability, which is like not at all what exists at all. Yeah. You have a guy that's like, well, maybe if I like say this one thing that I know the editor wants to hear, I'll get $300 from like mm. some, this one paper uh, in this part of the world. And that has, again, as imperfect as mainstream journalism was clearly in the 20th century, like, you know, in the Cold War is like my first book goes into this quite a lot. It just got worse, yeah. right? Just like yeah. there, a lot of people were like, fuck you to various leaders in the, in the 2010s. But then that initial, uh, that, that very exciting moment where when you were like sticking it to them didn't like necessarily lead uh, to something great in the long term. I mean, I, I personally believe that. I think all journalists just, like the UN or like a parallel UN should just arrest <laughs> most of, all of them. Yeah. Maybe not like ones that I like, but all, all of them. And then kind of just <laughs> let out the ones that like, like a tribunal or I mean, this is, says I, is okay. I, I like sort of actually defend a, like the UN-led nationalization of social media. Like I think that's so, I would be, yeah. <laughs> I do not? think that sort of somehow or another in the long term you I have to I just think we should have upload caps. That is, you know that what? That literally would just yeah. oh, just like end a lot of madness. Right? Yeah, <laughs> to just, stop people from. We need what's the what's well. The first of all, that, that would be take a revolution at this point yeah, because yeah. of there's just too much money and in, right. in, uh, involved now. But to to kind of cap how much people can upload and cap content upload would like dramatically shift overnight. That. And then we ban group chats. Oh, we gotta ban <laughs> group chats. That would lead to a complete reorganization of society we in one month. We gotta ban group chats. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, yeah, I'm, I'm like, uh, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the like dynamic that got Bolsonaro elected the first time was like WhatsApp groups. WhatsApp groups, yeah, yeah, like they're showing condoms to my two year old. Uh, no, they're forcing my two year old to practice uh, oral sex. Yeah. yeah, wow. Yeah, <laughs> which Jesus, is, didn't happen so at all. It was totally made up, but it didn't matter. It still gets your blood going. Yeah. You know, it still gets that feeling. Well, yeah. yeah, okay. Thinking my blood going. No anger, the feeling, <laughs> oh, okay. the feeling of moral outrage, which is like, which is like again, like back in 2011, nobody really knew what made like for a great virality, like what was like caused virality, but moral outrage is a thing that really it's gets gotta people be. Gone. Listen, it's pedophilia. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's like. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that by 2023 you have like political tendencies in every part of the world that just like accuse their enemies enemies of being pedophiles because it works it gets it gets it, people mad listen it works baby <laughs> i'll tell you this yeah uh your book and i'm 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 quoting uh a scholar that i very much respect 
Your book contains with it a provocation. Mm. That scholar's Liz, of course. Uh, your book contains with it a provocation, and actually, really, that's not what I meant to say. I just like to say that. You just want to make fun <laughs> of me. I, no, I don't. I didn't want to make fun. That was literally an actual in tribute, in homage to you. Okay. I was not making fun of you. Um, it could be both. The L word love? comes up quite a bit. It, love. And would you consider love to be the <laughs> ultimate goal? Uh, no, uh, Lenin. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lenin. Uh, the little the the, imp, the impish Russian himself, <laughs> Lenin, um, comes up quite a bit uh, yeah. in 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 this work. Um, and you seem to, and I don't want to put words in your mouth here. Sure. Uh, but he certainly comes up a number of times right. in the uh, in the sort of final two chapters right. where you where you're. I don't, know, I don't know what you would call it. The final two chapters of the fucking book. I think there's kind of talk about the conclusion and then epilogue. That's like this. the word. The C word. Conclusion. Yeah. The C word. Conclusion. Um, <laughs> and I mean, it's we're learning it, a lot today about <laughs> yeah, the various we're words. A lot of words today. <laughs> a little punchy. Um, well, he's great. We love him. But uh, w- w- like, is 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 that like something that you kind of came into? Because I I would have I of course came into this book already with preconceived notions of like right. this is this is what works because I can look at history right? right. I have no great love for Lenin as a person. I just think he was right, mm-hmm. uh, and as a person, he was kind of cool. But uh, but I, you know, I just think he was right. It was correct. So I came into this book being like, I know what I believe already. Right. Uh, and did you come to your conclusion that like? It's likely true that Leninist methods of organizing are more effective for uh, achieving and maintaining power than perhaps more individualistic forms of organizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you come to that conclusion throughout this sort of the research for this book, or, right. or like I, how did you get to that conclusion? Well, this was a real life ideological evolution that happened among many people that lived through this decade. Yeah. So a lot of the people that in 2011, 2012, 2013 are more pro structurelessness let's say end up either being like no we need to return to Len- some form of Len- Lenin I mean Rodrigo Nunes Brazilian philosopher um, he's one of the guys that's there in 2005 he's organizing a space that they can set up I don't know if you remember this moment in the anti-globalization or anti-globalization movement he's setting up a clown school where people can do like street performance as uh as as like don't look at me. <laughs> you're in you're in you're in you're Liz is in the third year of her she won't say this she's embarrassed. She's in the third year of her grad program at a clown <laughs> that is school. Not she's true. actually been in clown school for the past fifteen years. I met her actually at like a sort of verso clown school soiree. <laughs> right, right. The clown loft. The clown loft, of course. <laughs> the verso clown loft. And he so he, he he's he's insistent he like I like. I understand why he is that he didn't actually teach at the clown school, but he said, uh, like, mm-hmm. he was there when that kind of stuff was in the air. You will never catch my <laughs> ass at the clown school. <laughs> so he's there. In, he's there when this is the dominant, yeah, uh, sort of ideological approach to like mass protests. You know, performance in the streets. You know, prefiguration, like building new types of of, of connection. And he comes. You know, he along with many other people in the book come along to well, what he calls networked Leninism, which is like the what was going to be the title for a book, which is eventually neither vertical nor horizontal. Uh, Jihan Tuyal, uh, you know, you know Turkish, right? His name is Jihan Tuyal. Bro, nobody knows Turkish. I thought you learned Turkish. What about Boris Johnson? I, uh, I, I learned how to say co- Yoldash, a comrade. Uh, so a Turkish sociologist. Merhaba. Hello. Uh, so a Turkish sociologist, I think I'm pronouncing his name more or less, Jihan Tuyal, he's now Berkeley, comes to like, we need to return to a neo, like a, a renewed interpretation 
uh, of Bolshevism. We need a renewed, everything needs to be a renewed, networked, mm-hmm. a little twist on the old classics. Well, Listen, we do whatever, live in a slightly what, different world, whatever, right? I mean, we do live in a different world. Whatever funky little Appalachians people want to toss on Everyone's got to, like, throw their little remix in. As, as long as it's there. Um, mm-hmm. So this is a real-life ideological transformation that happens throughout the... Um, throughout the decade, a lot of people in different countries, you know, a guy in, in, in Ukraine told me, like, well, I used to believe in sort of self-organization, but now I believe that without an organized working class, um, elites will always take advantage of a, of a street explosion. I, I go, he, he goes, went back to, like, what is to be done. Um, so there's that. There's just, like, a real thing that happens amongst my uh, interviewees, and I understand that in the U.S., this, like, is, it is a provocation. It's a bit spicy. But if it were not, I think for that sort of deep assumption, like the deep anti-communist assumptions in U.S. political yes. culture, mm-hmm. yeah. the 2010s wouldn't have gone the way they did. Like, like the, the, the like tiny little story that uh, I recount in the book about like Malcolm McLaren choosing to make the yeah. Sex Pistols quote-unquote mm-hmm. anarchist because he tried communism for the, dolls. the New York Dolls and they were like, nope, that's too far. It's people not going to fly people in got New really York mad City. At us. Yeah. People got really, really mad at us when, you know, Sex Pistols are anarchists. Like, oh, that's, you know, that's, that's spicy, yeah. but we can take it. Um, American culture still loves anarchists. I mean, it's like... Um, there, I think there is a deep, like, like deep sort of individualist. You know, individualism yeah. is at the heart of everyone. No, 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 no one disagrees everyone with that. Everyone loves freedom, yeah, capital yeah. F in this like country. Like a particular type of individually defined freedom is at the heart of the American problem. Like everyone agrees on that, whether you're yeah. against it or whether you love it. Like Republicans all agree on that. Yeah. And um, so that's one part of the answer. Another part of the answer is that in order to, des- to describe where this stuff comes from, I have to go back to, or at least I choose to, maybe I maybe it was the wrong choice, but I choose to go back to this moment in the 60s where particular students in the United States growing up in the wake of McCarthyism choose to uh, employ certain organizational practices as a rejection of or to be different than what they saw as the historical mistakes of the Soviet Union. So you can't yeah. understand, because in the first half of the 20th century, or indeed by even into the 60s and 70s outside the U.S., what you call, or you say, in the way that you say that Lenin was right about organization, whether or not you agreed with all the other stuff, like some kind of a... I do. <laughs> but yeah. Some kind of a Leninist organizational form was quite hegemonic around the world. You had all kinds of movements, whether or not they were actually yeah. like socialist adopting, adopting like the Leninist party form. It was like, a party of a new type. Like both, like parties like were, had learned in some ways from mm-hmm. Leninist organizational forms. Um, obviously, Even the right took... I mean, quite famously, like the vanguardist right wing, even in America, took a lot of cues Mm -hmm. from Lenin. I mean, Mm -hmm. Murray Rothbard was famously a huge, I mean, he called himself a huge fan of Lenin. Obviously not the... Well, he was quite substantial. (laughs) Anyways, that's the, yeah, I guess that's the two answers is that there's a real evolution among people around the world that I like saw this happen. And again... In Brazil or in Turkey, returning to Lenin is way less provocative yeah. than here. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. not really. No one's yeah. like Matt. Like you know, the Brazil, like Lula's uh, government um, has always governed very closely with the Pesedo Bay, which is a Marxist-Leninist party, hammering sickle on the flag. Uh, used to be part of this Hojaist international tendency, just like the Workers' Party in Tunisia. Like even even like there are like of course rabid anti-communists in Brazil, but the existence of like Marxist-Leninists in the political structures of places like you know, Turkey, Brazil, Ukraine. That's not like, that's not so shocking as it is here. So I knew that it would be a little bit like, yeah. oh my God, in the U.S., but like the book's not primarily about the U.S. and this is a real movement that's, you know. And like some members of the MPL have moved in this direction themselves and other members of the MPL complain like, fuck, like, 
the young generation of leftists, they're all like back into Lenin now. Like, you know, so it's, it, it was a real thing that happened outside the U.S. and is not nearly as shocking yeah. in the global south as it is in, in like Brooklyn or California. Yeah, no, I would say if you travel basically anywhere in the world, you'll find Yeah, if you mean, uh, like, Arab leftists are, like, proper, like, leftists. Yeah. Like, they're often from, you know, communist party families. Not, you know, not always. But this, this exists in a way that we decimated in the United States in the 50s, and it's a real historical exception. Well, the book ends, spoiler alert, a little bit before or on the eve of Bolsonaro's failed re-election. Right. And I would be remiss if I didn't before we end we end this fantastic interview that we've been having. Um, didn't ask you about the events of January eighth, mm-hmm. um, and for people listening, we did an episode on that when that mm-hmm. happened. But the kind of Bolsonaroistas storming of the Capitol, kind of the uh, of no, Cong- it's only six! <laughs> Congress. I mean, yeah, they stormed. In, yeah, they stormed yeah, the Capitol yeah. in Brazil. Yeah, yeah. Um, very much a kind of weird. Both mimetic performance of January sixth in the U.S., but also weirdly of the um, June twenty thirteen protests, mm-hmm. where also the left stormed the Capitol. Yeah. There's a weird sort of kind of um, book, kind of bookend happening mm-hmm. there that sort of traces this, the you know the genesis of something in June twenty thirteen all the way through to this kind of I don't know melancholic farcical right. attempt. Yeah, like that first the Bols- tragedy, the cons- then his farce, then his like really stupid farce. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like an even like more clownish, again, yeah. in the clown kind of tradition, I suppose, um, version of, yeah, whatever that was on January 8th and the kind of like, yeah, just very sad Bolsonaristas maybe also somehow thinking that if they, they too kind of just got there and made something happen that something would happen. Yeah, I mean, Jay- these people yeah. were like the most like pathetically and like actually tragically like internet adult guys. You'd exactly. Because like, if you spoke, we, we and I, had that here too, dude. <laughs> I, it's the same guys. Well, yeah, January the January sixth guys. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, but the, but it's crazy to me because it does really feel like this funhouse mirror right. of of June twenty thirteen in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, so in June twenty thirteen, at this point, but at this point, probably it was a left started protest. By this point, when they like like ran up on top of Brazil's like National Congress building like you look at photos like it looks like very futuristic like they like they like rush and there's all these big shadows this happens in June 23 absolutely and this is something that at the time the like broader anti-authoritarian left is like well yeah this is a you know an outpouring of support for whatever it is that we started Um, but functionally like the actual concrete things that these human bodies are doing in the real world is the same thing Mm-hmm. And again, this is a like this is like another point that comes up across like the book. Like, like a tactic can be used in many, many different ways. It can right. be the right thing for the moment. It can be the wrong thing for the moment. It can be the right thing used by a bad guy or mm-hmm. the wrong thing used by a good guy. It's an important point. Yeah. And uh, I think you know almost any tactic that I can think of is is defensible in some in- instances, right? Like in some instances, everyone defends like violence against like an invading force, or sometimes mm-hmm. everyone defends ultimate destabilization. What about of- cheating? <laughs> That's a very good question. Like in a, like in a relationship. Yeah. <laughs> go on though. Go on. No, I'm thinking about the. I'm thinking about the answer. To, uh, no, never. Okay. Never. Okay. Never yeah. is the answer. If that's the agreement that you have, mm-hmm. you don't vi- you don't violate it. No. Uh, and by you know, so I was in Brazil for the election, um, 
And you saw like these increasingly pathetic, the 2022 election that Lula eventually wins, just barely even the Bolsonaro does everything he can to try to destroy right. democracy. Yeah. Like Beyond having U.S. support. If he had U.S. support, he would have been able to t- well, take he lost. So I think, so he lost the support of the Brazilian ruling class. Yeah. And the Brazilian ruling class is well allied with the, like that's, you know, the, yeah, like I went, think I put it sometime in one of the articles, like, he lost the support of the Brazilian, like, quote-unquote, business class or the, the support of the national bourgeoisie and their international yeah. partners. You know, if you don't have the support of, like, the, quote-unquote, business elite in Brazil, what's the point of a d- dictatorship in the first place? Like, why are you going to have a dictatorship yeah. in South America if you're not even helping, with like, the exactly. elites, reaper, like, uh, accumulate capital? What are you doing? Yeah. Um, so he lost the, the uh, like, not all, but a lot of the ruling class. So, But he couldn't get the support for a real coup because he knows how you really do a coup. You get the military behind the scenes. You get the military to yeah. agree to that. You know, you, oh. you create a, an excuse. You shut down, you know. <laughs> oh, we, believe me. Uh, so, big, yeah. Big There's other ways, though. Like, well, we case. saw coup, the, the 2014 coup different. Which 2014 coup? With Doma's impeachment. Oh, yeah, 2016. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. 20, yeah, the, yeah you, like, the, the, like, the really smart way to do thing, the modern coup in Latin America, like, even, like, like Pope Francis did like an article about this. It's like <laughs> you don't like bring tanks up. That looks really bad. What you do is you like find some judi- judicial it's judicial exclu- yeah, yeah. La- lawfare. Yeah, you do lawfare. lawfare. Yeah, yeah, like Pope Francis is a big guy like on, in the lawfare like uh, in lawfare thought. No, like yeah, <laughs> but he was like really really like free Lula. This is you know this is yeah, the, yeah. this is the contemporary way of doing coups. And so all of the real attempts fall apart, and then you get like these increasingly like f- WhatsApp addicted guys. And I mm-hmm. went so initially. They blocked all the highways in the country, which is like that could work. That's that's a part of an of a, a effective coup. That could yeah. be, that could work. You got some of your guys doing that. So that happened in the in the first days after the election, and ironically, it was like to some extent Brazilian football ultras that cleared the roads. Like, yeah. like Corinthians is a pro Lula team, a pro democracy team. Uh, but then, like they they're all camped out for, like outside of military barracks for weeks, and a lot of them that. like quite close to like where I, like I just go home like well, what exactly. Do you think? And either they don't have an answer, they have like some rumor that they think that tomorrow right. the storm is coming. The storm is yeah. yeah. Some magical force within the Brazilian deep state is going to arrest everybody and pro- proclaim that Bolsonaro is coming back. And eventually, the like the mo- like the fringe of the fringe of this like extreme right movement decides just to like go like turn this protest into an attack on the capital. Yeah. Uh, and like I spent a lot of the time like I spent like the last few weeks actually in Bos- in um, Brasilia interviewing like the. The most prominent, like, Bolsonaristas in the government, a lot of them, like, what they claim now, because, like, they live in entirely, like, distinct epistemic universes. They can just claim this as, like, uh, oh, that was actually the left. That was all, that was all. Like, <laughs> Beautiful. The, the left, yeah. <laughs> it was all, like, leftist infiltration that was pretending to be Bolsonaristas that did that, uh, or at least that was a big part of it. So it's mm. not us. It was, it was an our mistake. That, that was, the, I mean, that's the, precisely American. the same yeah. uh, response. Well, that, these guys like, watch, like, pay a lot of attention to right wing, like, they're watching internet the, in the, the United the, States. The war room. Well, this is a big part of what I'm working. Yeah, they, or like they even indeed have like actual conferences where they trade. Yeah, yeah like group chats. Shut them down. Group chats. Yeah, group chats. <laughs> and so yeah, so you're right. Like it's and this question came up on the 10 year anniversary of of June 2013. Like, okay, well, we understand that like the initial. Demands were different, but like, what is in a democracy? And again, it's very different when you're dealing with Mubarak in Egypt, right? But in a democracy, what is the actual place for trying to physically eject the elected representatives? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which becomes, you know, a big problem. In like again, in Ukraine, like in even in imperfect democracy, what happens after the ejection of the person that was actually put there with votes? Uh, and like, yeah, and this was a this is I think an unresolved question, like uh, uh, like. 
we're still dealing with like the long tail of the consequence of this of all of this. Well, the book is fantastic. If we burn the mass protest decade and the missing revolution, Vincent, it's so nice to have you in the studio. I'm so happy that we were able to do it not on Zoom. Yeah, no, thank you. No, no truly, thank you for having me, having me. I've been looking forward to it. Uh, not that we use Zoom, actually. We used Zoom <laughs> last time, right? It's I think. a different one. We uh, do a, a different, different program. No, that might have been, when we had Vincent on, that might have been. It was like Zencaster? Zen, what do you got? Uh, we got one of them, motherfuckers. Zencaster? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, no, it's, we, oh. I believe it's Zencaster, yeah, but please don't DDoS us. <laughs> I actually don't know what that means or how that would work. No, but it is really. But if you do it with a V for Vendetta mask on, then I'll allow it. Then you are the de facto leader of the, the podcast. Exactly. <laughs> so you are Comandante V, <laughs> v for Vendetta. The book has a lot in it, a lot that we did not cover today. I, I cannot fathom a listener of this program. who I, I'm calling it a program now. I cannot <laughs> fathom a listener of this program who would not enjoy this book in some funky way. Or all funky ways. Yeah, there's uh, so, a lot of really great information. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you very much. Like I tried to – well, like all I, I spent maybe too much time on this book. But I tried to make it like properly a book where like yeah. everyone's going to find their own thing. Like not just be like here's an argument and then like here's the padding. Like I tried to put a lot in there and hopefully people will bring different things to it and come away with different things at the end of the, the story. Well, Vincent – you kind of look like a handsome version of the actor Vincent. He sucks. You know what I'm talking about because you've heard this before, haven't you? Some people's brains do this what? because you have no, dude. You, you have the, to, It's you because it's the like same him. name. Wait, no, which guy? You, you, I know what he's doing. Some people do this. It's a very like it's a very lizard do. brain thing. What yeah, yeah. Because lizard. <laughs> First of all, loaded language. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's wow. Interesting. <laughs> Would you say it's a banker brain thing to do? Mm. <laughs> Does that lizard? What, what's that? The what's the nose look like on that lizard? What's the? What's the? What's the? What's his name? No. no. Who the fuck is that? I know who what you're. That? I know who you're thinking Vincent of. Vincent Cardheiser. He always from plays like a shithead. He always plays a douchebag. Yes. Yeah, dude. He's no. famous. No, Vincent. You don't look like the guy from. No, Man. I'm gonna look. He doesn't. I don't. Matt. I've never seen. Are you sure his name this. is Vincent? What? Do you, what? A, no, no. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Yes, Vincent's it is. Are you talking I look like about? the cool French Vincent, uh, the French one. I mean, people do this, Vincent but people only famous. say this after they heard my name is Vincent. They never think that I look like I've this guy. I've known your name is Vincent until- the entire time. <laughs> okay, famousfix.com. Actors with the first name Vincent, Vince Neil. No, a little bit. You got a Vince Neil thing to you, but Vincent Gallo. I would say politically, but not physically. <laughs> uh, Vincent D'Onfrio? D'Onfrio, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, Law and Order. Law and Order, This yeah. is only three people long. No, dude, he's the most famous guy named Vincent besides Van Gogh. But then how come he doesn't come up on Google? Yeah. Uh, wait, I'm like, like Vincent. I, do you know why the answer is? It's because his name is Vince. I know, I Vincent, think people call him Vince. Uh, if you But actor Vince, I know where you're going and I don't like Vince it. Vaughn! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Really? Yeah, he looks like a... It's, like, like I a, said, it's just because of the word. His I brain, don't think that's how the no, human brain works. You look like a handsome Vince Vaughn. You're associating no, the word just it's just the word. No, you got You the think chin. it's a coincidence that I'm one of like six people you've ever seen that has the name Vincent that what you are think you talking about? I used to live with Vinnie Martini. So seven. <laughs> Vincent? I know so many Vincents. Okay, four, six four, people? Fourteen, I don't know. Fourteen. Four, whoa. A lot of Filipinos <laughs> named Vincent. A lot of Filipinos named Vincent. We didn't even talk about the Philippines. Um, uh, but so 
Yeah, but I think it's because of my name. But whatever, yeah. Well, I, I love I, you. Not, I don't live inside your brain. So. And I love you, and I love the book. <laughs> thank you. And I love that you came on the program. Yeah, thank you uh, so much. And with that being said, Vincent, farewell. <laughs> <laughs> Bruce, what did you learn today? What did we learn? Well, I think if you get enough people in one place, then something happens. Yeah. And if you have a mask that looks kind of like a clown, but a little bit more twisted. Dark. Dark clown with like a twisted smile, you can get on the internet. Mm-hmm. You should have seen, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, you should have seen the contortions uh, which Liz's body went into. It was almost like she had stuck a fork in an electric socket when the clown school came up. <laughs> she, I have never seen somebody shrink. In, I would say Liz became three inches by three inches at that point. Uh, and then she exploded, much like a sort of a jack-in-the-box type scenario. You know, you make fun of me, but I trained with the former president of Clowns of America. Ow, 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 sorry. Liz just fucking... Dude, Liz just fucking had me smell a flower and then just it had water in it. Dude. I didn't do that. Oh. You know, I, yeah, we don't need to get into my cloning work. Well, I mean, you trained with the former president of the Clowns of America? Yeah. I take a pie real well. I didn't know you were in Congress. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Um, yeah, yeah. It's just, ooh, a piece of gum? Oh, this nothing bad could happen. Ow, ow, ow. Wait, Liz, oh, thank God, I'm so hungry. You're offering me peanuts? Oh, well, only peanuts could be in- Oh, my God, a snake! And thus ends. <laughs> that. I'm Liz. My name is Brace. Of course, we are joined by the shirtless but two pairs of pants, producer Young Chomsky, and the podcast is called... True and on. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.